We're going to be in the Gospel of John this morning. I want to invite you to go there with me. John chapter 14. We're going to get there in just a moment, but I wanted to start with this. In 1977, a man by the name of Charles Strauss and another man by the name of Martin Sharnan wrote the lyrics for a tune, a very well-known tune. Now, I want to apologize in advance for this. The tune goes like this. The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun. Just thinking about tomorrow clears away the cobweb and the sorrow till there's none. When I'm stuck with a day that's gray and lonely, I stick up my chin and grin and say, the sun will come out tomorrow. So you gotta hang on till tomorrow, come what may. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I love ya. Tomorrow, you're only a day away. <laughs> Strauss was a composer and he was writing this song for a Broadway play called Annie, right. It was a play that later became a, um, a movie that many of us have seen, right? Many of us have seen either the play or the movie, maybe even both of those. And Charnin, or Strauss was a, a composer who was well-known enough that he wrote some songs for the Beatles as well. And so he was this guy in his profession who was very often the coolest guy in the room. Now, my favorite line in this song is the line that says, you're never fully dressed without a smile. Right? There's an optimism in this song, an optimism that almost seems silly when you consider the character of Annie. Strauss was asked about this, and he talked about the fact that they wanted to infuse an optimism in this character, this character of Annie, that transcended her circumstances. They wanted to create her to be this kind of hopeless romantic, in spite of the fact that, that she, she was orphaned, her parents had abandoned her and hadn't returned. In spite of the fact that she was in this awful orphanage and this woman was making bathtub booze. In spite of, in spite of the fact that her, her life was awful and it appeared like there was no hope of improvement. They wanted to infuse optimism into her character. Now I know that there's a question that's running through many of your minds right now. Why is Wagner starting this sermon on the Holy Spirit with this song tomorrow from the, the movie Annie? Well, I'm glad that you asked. And I'll let you know in just a moment. But first, I need to give you a word to, to attach to something that's going to happen to you later this afternoon. Later this afternoon, you're going to find yourself singing this song, right? That's because this song, this song is called an earworm, right? It's the kind of song that gets stuck in your head and you can't get it out. Now, that's why I apologize before I began. You thought I was, gonna, I was apologizing because I sing so poorly, but I was apologizing because of what's going to happen this afternoon. You're going to be watching the baseball game on TV. You're going to be gardening in the backyard. You're going to be cooking. And all of a sudden, you're going to start singing, Tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you, tomorrow. Now, the key to getting rid of an earworm is to replace it with an equally awful song. And the one that usually works for me is from that ride at Disneyland. It's a small world after all. It's a small world after all. Now you've got two earworms to deal with, so <laughs> sorry about that. 
Now, the reason why I started with, with this song and with the orphan Annie is because very often when people think about the Holy Spirit, they think wrongly about who he is and what he does. They start to think about the Holy Spirit kind of like this weird uncle that shows up at the family reunion and, and makes things awkward. They try to make the Holy Spirit all about emotionalism and, and spontaneity. They remove from the Holy Spirit the beauty of the biblical text, which tells us who he is and what he's like. In fact, they start to focus only on those, those spiritual gifts that some people would call weird, because we don't fully understand them. No, I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't give those gifts, that he can't give those gifts. He can give the gift of tongues. He can give the gift of prophecy. He can give the gift of healing. But if we focus only on those things, we remove the, the power and the essence of the Holy Spirit from our lives. You know, sometimes people struggle. Sometimes Christians struggle to understand the Holy Spirit. We tend to grasp who God the Father is and what he's like. We understand Jesus Christ and his role in our redemptive stories. But very often, we don't understand the Holy Spirit and what his role is. And so as a result, we speak about and we talk about the Holy Spirit far less than we talk about the Father or the Son. The reason why I began with optimism and the orphan Annie is because in many ways, the Holy Spirit's role can be talked about in terms of the one who ransoms us from our spiritual orphanage and who draws us into the family of God. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit, when we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, we're talking about something far more robust than just the bringer of the sign gifts. We're talking about the one who draws us into our forever family, the one who draws us into the family of God. Jesus was having a conversation with his disciples, and he was letting them know that their time together was coming to an end. They had had three years together, but now it was coming to an end. And he comforted them by letting them know that um, this counselor, this other counselor was going to be coming to them. And in fact, in John chapter 16, he tells them it's better for them that he leaves so that this advocate can come. In Acts chapter 1, after Jesus' death and resurrection, he tells his disciples to stay, to wait in Jerusalem for the coming Holy Spirit. Now, the disciples at this point don't know what or who this is and what it's going to be like, but they're expectant. They're trusting because Jesus said that this was going to be a good gift. In Acts chapter 2, we see the fulfillment of this promise. As the Holy Spirit is unleashed with the kind of power that no one has ever seen or experienced before. And then Peter tells the crowd that's assembled that this Holy Spirit is available to all who believe. As we continue reading through the New Testament, through those letters written to that first century church, we see the power that's available to us through the Holy Spirit. We see that Spirit-enabled ability to put sin to death in our lives, and we see the, the supernatural gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to us. I think if we read and truly believed those accounts, we would expect a great deal from the Holy Spirit. He wouldn't be that mostly forgotten member of the Trinity that some people just give a nod of recognition to, which is what he's become in many American churches. We would expect our new life with the Holy Spirit to look radically different than our old life without him. But that's not the way it is for many people. For many people, we don't live that way. 
We don't think we need the Holy Spirit, and so we don't expect the Holy Spirit to act. Very often because of our, our education or our experience or our talent, we feel fairly capable of living rather successful lives without the strength of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're going to spend a few weeks talking about the Holy Spirit. We're going to focus on it this morning, and then towards the end of our sermon series, we'll spend a couple more weeks talking about the Holy Spirit. Because there are a few things that we need to be very clear about when it comes to the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul tells us, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. According to this verse, if I'm a believer, then the Holy Spirit lives in me. Paul reiterates this fact in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Our bodies are the Spirit's temple. The Holy Spirit lives within us. We are the place that the Holy Spirit dwells. Now this prompts a question that we can't get around, right? If I'm a believer and the Holy Spirit is living within me, then shouldn't my life look significantly different than the person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit in them? I want to use an illustration here. It may seem silly, but I think it makes my point. If I told you that I had had a supernatural encounter with God, where he entered into my body and gave me the supernatural ability to play golf, first of all, how cool would that be? <laughs> he entered into my body and gave me a supernatural ability to play golf. Wouldn't you expect my golf game to improve? Wouldn't you expect my driving distance to be so much greater, my putting and my shipping to improve? I mean, this is God that we're talking about, right? And if you didn't see my, my golf game improve, if my golf game didn't improve, wouldn't you question the validity of my encounter? Now, we can use that same reasoning when it comes to our spiritual lives. If I'm a believer, if I'm a Christian, and the Holy Spirit lives within me, then shouldn't I expect that my life would be different in some significant ways from the person who wasn't a Christian. Let's keep that question in mind as we go to our passage together. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. If you love me, 
keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. And because I live, you also will live. (coughs) Jesus was talking to his disciples and letting them know that he was going to be leaving them. They had been together for three years, and, and it had been great. He warned them that he was going, and the time was coming to an end. And he proved them, he, he comforted them by telling them, do not worry, but trust me. Now, over the three years they'd been together, Jesus had proven himself to be quite trustworthy. And he comforted them first by telling them that the separation was going to be temporary, that he was going to prepare a place for them. And then he told them that he was going to be with God the Father and that even from there he could hear their prayers. And then he gave them the ultimate assurance that he was going, but there would be another comforter or advocate or counselor who would be coming to them. That God the Father was going to send this counselor to be with them forever. Now the Greek word used here for another means another just like the first one. Jesus was telling them that the coming counselor, the coming Holy Spirit, was going to be just like him. Think about the significance of having another counselor just like Jesus. Think about what it would be like to have a physical Jesus with you all the time as your personal counselor. Imagine the peace that you would have from knowing that you'd always receive perfect advice and, and flawless direction. I mean, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? None of us would would doubt or or question the the benefit of having a physical Jesus enabling us and leading us all the way. But Jesus told his disciples, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is basically saying, it's been great for the last three years. It's been great to be together, but it's going to be better that I leave you and the Holy Spirit comes to you. Imagine when the Disciples heard that 2,000 years ago. It was confusing. It was hard to understand. How could it be better to trade a physical Jesus that you could see and touch and talk to and walk with and eat with for a spirit that they couldn't physically see? I think we today would would probably also agree that we'd much rather have a physical Jesus than an invisible spirit. But what do we do with Jesus' words? Jesus said that it's better for us that he go and the Spirit comes. Do we believe Jesus' words? And do our lives reflect that belief? That early church knew far less about the Holy Spirit than we, many of us, do today, at least in an intellectual sense. But they came to know the Spirit intimately and personally as he worked in them and through them, which brings out an important point. It is important for us to to study, to grow in our understanding of who the Spirit is and and what he does. But as we grow in that understanding, equally important is to learn to live with the Spirit faithfully today. Ultimately, our desire is to have deeper fellowship with the Spirit and a greater awareness of his presence in our lives. There's a pastor who asked his wife kind of a silly question. He, He asked her, Do you ever wonder what a caterpillar thinks about? 
His wife thought this was a joke, so she said no, expecting to hear the punchline. But he began to talk about what a caterpillar's life was like. How they wandered around in a small patch of dirt their whole life, climbing up and down some plants and eating some, some leaves. And then the, the caterpillar takes a nap, a, a really long nap. When he wakes up, he discovers he has this ability to fly. Imagine his, his astonishment when he discovers that his old, plump, dirty caterpillar body is gone, and, and now he's got this slim body and these big, beautiful wings that allow him to fly. I think as believers, we should experience that same astonishment when the Holy Spirit comes to reside inside of us. That we should have that same amazement that the caterpillar does when, when he begins to fly as, as we begin to be led and live by the Spirit. I mean, isn't that what the scriptures talk about? Isn't that what we've always longed for? I think it's amazing to think that the same Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives inside of you and inside of me. I don't know what the Spirit is going to do each time I ask him to guide me. But I know that I don't want to live the same way that the person who doesn't have the Spirit inside of them lives. I don't want to walk when I have the ability to fly. In the Charles Dickens story, Oliver Twist, Oliver is orphaned almost from birth. His mom dies in childbirth. It was an illegitimate pregnancy, and so the dad is nowhere to be found. And so Oliver is born, he's orphaned, and he's placed inside this awful orphanage. In one of the most well-known scenes, Oliver draws a short straw and has to go ask the taskmaster for more food. These kids were wildly malnourished, and so Oliver goes to ask more food for more food, and the audacity of this orphan boy asking for more food causes the taskmaster to uh, put him in what's called the apprenticeship, which is basically hard child labor. Oliver has to work long hours. He's given very little um, food, and, and he's beaten by this, this boy who's a little bit older than him. And then he's beaten by uh, the taskmaster's wife, and finally he's beaten by the taskmaster himself. There's a scene where Oliver is in his bed and he's weeping. He decides he's got to change his life, and to change his life, he's got to escape. He runs away from the orphanage, he runs to London where he meets this crew of, of young boys. They're fun, they laugh a lot. They tell him about a man who cares for them. The man's name is Fagin. He's the one who provides for them, the one who loves them and cares for them. The problem is that Fagin is kind of a kingpin mobster who uses these young boys as thieves and pickpockets to, to rob and to steal. Oliver tries to change his life, and really, to this point in his life, he is one after another trying to change his life from the difficult circumstances he's in, only to find that he's breaking his life even more. Now, the story of Oliver Twist ends with this beautiful, idealized uh, ending. But most of his life is spent with Oliver trying to change his life and, in the end, breaking it even more. We all know what that's like. We've all had circumstances in our lives where we've faced challenging circumstances. We try to fix them on our own and end up digging a deeper hole for ourselves. I'm sure we can all remember moments in our lives like that. Challenge is that we, sometimes we find that we aren't good enough. Our best isn't good enough. We're trying to work hard in our marriage and it's not getting better and we realize right, my best isn't good enough. We're working hard in other areas of our life with our kids, with our work, with our church. Things just aren't getting better. My best isn't good enough. 
we become acutely aware of that and we begin to feel stuck. Oliver is a kind of a spiritual orphan where the more he tries to fix his life, the more difficult and messy his life becomes. And sometimes in life for us, the more we try to fix our lives, the more difficult and messy it becomes. I want to try to speak gently to everyone here who has begun to feel like my best just isn't good enough. And I want to ask you a question. Who told you that it would be? Where did we ever get the idea that my best would ever be good enough? I mean, are you God? Are you omnipotent? Are you omnipresent? Where did we ever get the idea that I can do it on my own? And that my best is good enough? Where did we ever get that idea? Jesus enters into that, that reality for us. We think that we have to be good enough. And that, that belief is, is a prescription for stress and feeling overwhelmed. And in verse 18, Jesus speaks that, those words to his disciples, and I believe he speaks these words to us this morning as well. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. So the solution for us not being good enough on our own in all these different life situations is this. The solution is through the, the adopting work of the Holy Spirit, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We have been rescued and ransomed out of this cosmic orphanage and brought into the family of God. We are not good enough on our own. And you know what? That's okay. We were never meant to be good enough on our own because we were never meant to be on our own, right? God's plan for you and for me is that he, through his Holy Spirit, would take up residence within us, that he would be with us every moment of every day, making our life different than it ever could be otherwise. Now, we're gonna spend a few more weeks on the Holy Spirit towards the end of our sermon series here. But I wanted to, in the time that we have left, walk through just a few ways that the Holy Spirit works in us and works in the world. First of all, the Holy Spirit speaks, helps us speak when we are in precarious situations and need to bear witness. Those disciples were going to be Jesus' witnesses in a world that was going to be hostile to their message. And Jesus warned them and, and comforted them by telling them that they would not be on their own, that not even their words would necessarily be their own. When we're in those difficult situations, where we don't know what to say. All we need to do is ask the Spirit to help us, and he'll give us the words to speak. The counselor teaches us and reminds us of what we need to know and remember. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. He is our guide. He is our advisor. He is our encourager. He will guide us in those things that we need to do and where we need to go. From the Spirit, we receive power to be God's witnesses to the ends of the earth. It's the Spirit who draws people to the gospel, right? It's the Spirit who empowers us to be used for God's purposes in this world. It's the Spirit who initially draws people to faith, and it's also the Spirit who draws believers into deeper relationship with Jesus. By the power of the Spirit, we put to death the misdeeds of the body. The Spirit sets us free of those sins that we can't let go of by ourselves. And this is an ongoing process with the Spirit's help, a, a partnership with the Spirit that begins the moment we first believe. It's something that happens each and every day of our lives. By the, 
Through the Spirit, we have received the spirit of adoption as children, which leads us into intimacy with the Father. Instead of a relationship based on fear, we have a relationship with God based on love and trust and intimacy. We are God's children. The Spirit bears witness inside of us to let us know, I am a son of God. You are a son or a daughter of God. And our relationship with him is based on love and based on grace. The Holy Spirit convicts people of sin. He does this both initially, before we come to faith, convicting us of our sin and, and our need for a Savior. It's also something he does on a daily basis, where he reminds us that we have done something we should not have done, or we failed to do something that we should do. The Spirit brings us life and freedom. Where the Spirit is, there is freedom. Romans 8, 1 tells us, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't live in a, a life of guilt and, and bondage because of our sin. Because of our relationship with God, the Spirit reminds us that we live that, that life. We have that opportunity to live that full and abundant life that God has meant for us from the beginning. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we abound with hope because our God is a God of hope who fills his children with peace and joy. As members of God's kingdom community, each of us is given a manifestation of the Spirit in our lives for the purpose of the common good. We each have something to offer because of what the Spirit is doing inside of us as he is shaping us and equipping us. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has taken residence inside of you and each one of us have at least one spiritual gift, a gift that we can use in ministry for the common good and for the glory of God. And then the fruit of being led by the Spirit includes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are attitudes and actions and characteristics that characterize the one who is being shaped by the Holy Spirit from the inside out. We use a big word in the church, it's sanctification. It's that process by which believers are being shaped more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ where we're becoming more and more like him, not just for our own benefit, though there certainly is that benefit. I want to be filled with more love. I want to be filled with more peace and joy. When we are filled with those things, they ooze out of us and benefit everybody around us as well. We're going to spend a couple more weeks talking about the Holy Spirit as we come to the end of our sermon series. But I wanted to finish this morning with this. I grew up about an hour away from here in a, in a city called South Pasadena. We went to a church in Pasadena that was about a half a block off the parade route, uh, the Rose Parade route. And because of that, our youth group, every New Year's Eve would have an overnighter. We would have an all-night party in our, our uh, gym, our fellowship hall. The first half would be fun, games, snacks, lots of sugar. It was a great time. The second half, which began in the early morning hours, was a fundraiser for our youth group. As people would begin to arrive for the parade, they needed a place to park, and we would open up our, our parking lot and charge people to park there, and we would fill it. We would jam, pack, fill it, to the point where we made enough money in that one night to fund all of our activities for the youth group that whole year. It was a, it was a great night, and we, we looked forward to it every year. As the, the parking lot get, would get filled and the, the parade would begin, we'd, we'd head off. Some would head home because we were exhausted and we needed to go to bed. 
but sometimes we would head to the parade route to watch it together. Now, those of you who have been to the Rose Parade know that, that phenomenon of when that parade float breaks down, right? The whole parade stops as that parade float breaks down, and they got to bring in a mechanic to fix it and get things going again. One morning, one New Year's morning, as we were sitting there watching the parade, right in front of us, this parade float broke down. Not because the engine broke down, but because it ran out of gas. And it sat there holding up the rest of the parade until somebody could get a can of gas and fill it up again and get them going. Now, the funny part about it is, and, and the ironic part about it, this float was, was built by and was advertising Standard Oil Company. <laughs> this company with vast resources of oil had run out of gas, right? And the reason why I share this with us we have vast resources available to us every moment of every day. Because the Holy Spirit lives within us, we have the resources of wisdom and direction and encouragement and comfort, power to do ministry, power to do those things God is calling us to do. Let's not forget that it's, it's available every moment of every day. Let's tap into that resource, the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us as orphans. Thank you that you, in your great wisdom, have called us to come and to live and to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That you are available, God, to us every moment of every day through your Holy Spirit. We are so grateful for how that changes our life. How that changes our life in ways that we can't even put words to. We're grateful, Lord, to be in your family, to be in your forever family. Lord, I pray that we would tap into that resource that is available, that we would be aware of your Spirit's leading, that we would spot your Spirit as it is at work in us and around us, that we would join in with you in what you are doing, your kingdom purposes, because we want to be about your kingdom purposes. Show us how we can better work in tandem with you, Holy Spirit, that we might have that changed life that not only changes us, but changes the world around us as well. That's our great desire. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.